Mike Lesseter here from Farm Equipment, No-Till Farmer and Precision Farming Dealer Magazines. Thanks for tuning in for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs, sponsored by Osmondson Manufacturing. Today's conversation is with Precision Ag pioneer Al Myers, founder and CEO of Ag Leader. I had no idea what precision farming, as we call it today, would become. I decided to focus on the yield monitor because yield is the farmer's paycheck. It's the number one thing he's interested in. And I just thought, well, if product can be developed that works accurate enough, why wouldn't a lot of farmers buy that to be able to get a better read on their yields, easier to check hybrids, know what's coming off different fields and that kind of thing. I had the vision to make yield maps, but when I started developing the yield monitor, I did not even know that the GPS system existed. That's Ag Leader founder and CEO, Al Myers, talking about what he chose to work on as his first invention the on-the-go yield monitor that he moonlighted in his basement before testing and refining it on his dad's farm. I've been visiting Ag Leader for years now, including their silver anniversary event in 2017. But there's more to be learned about Al Myers. I'll tell you, while I was in Washington, D.C. for a meeting at the American Farm Bureau headquarters, I stumbled on the Precision Ag exhibit at the National Museum of American History. Included in this informative special exhibit is detail on the L. Meyer story, including many things our own farm industry doesn't know about this unassuming engineering mind turned entrepreneur and then global leader, and one who has been able to keep the company independent and privately held in a technological space that's now full of venture capital dollars. In the first half of this interview, the 70-year-old Al talks of his original goal to work at John Deere Caterpillar. Had he been able to get that job, the course of ag technology for the entire ag ecosystem would have been redirected. Al explains how the appetite to develop new products during the 1980s, when product development was mostly back-burnered, drove him to the basement to create something new, and how he struggled to sell a $2,200 product, which was about 10 times what farmers were comfortable paying for technology add-ons at the time. We had a fascinating afternoon with Al, though our conversation went well into overtime. As a result, this normally prompt engineering type was 40 minutes late for a meeting with his executive in charge of European operations. But thanks to Joe Kinsley, we edited down to a digestible podcast for you. So let's go. Our How We Did It Conversations podcast with Al Myers of Ag Leader. Thanks for joining us here, Al. Looking forward to this one for a long time. When we conceived of this project, we're very much thinking about what you started here in, yep. in the early 90s. Today, how do you define your scope and how you define your niche in, in what you do out there? Well, over the years, as we saw the progression of things that were happening or were obvious were needed, we recognized pretty early that two things that we needed in addition to the yield monitor we needed to be selling our own GPS receivers. It became obvious that people wanted a whole system ready to just plug in and everything's ready to go. They don't have to figure anything out. And then the other thing was, of course, the, the advanced users were looking for yield maps and some analytics. So we had to get into software. We initially marketed a program that another small company made for us. And then eventually, a few years later, developed our own software. 
as time went on, it became obvious that, you know, other things we should move into. You know, we've tried to provide a complete year-round precision farming package for the farmer and what the farmer expects as technology in the industry has progressed is more and more every year. And I'm not the person that, that really decides that anymore. I've got a whole product management department with product managers, product specialists, and they do market research. They go out and ride with farmers, talk with farmers, walk in their fields with them, that kind of a thing. So today we're always trying to figure out, well, what's the next thing that, that the farmer is going to need and want? In the area of technologies that we're strong in, which is electronics and electronic systems, Basically, um, we moved into controls starting in the early 2000s. The first thing we actually controlled, I think, uh, was new leaders, spinner spreaders, and then, of course, we moved on to planters and other types of devices. So you might say the trend has been more from just monitoring in the beginning. We monitor um, a lot of different things now, like, you know, sophisticated planter monitoring. But today, it's more about controlling something on the machinery. And of course, the, the data aspect of it has got more sophisticated. And now we're moving into the realm of which the whole developed world is moving into the realm of uh, connectivity. In other words, cell phones, that kind of thing. And we're in the egg industry. We're kind of saying, well, everybody that's involved in the farming operation or advising the farming or serving the farmer needs to have all their data anytime, anywhere they want to look at it. As a starting point, tell us about your upbringing and through the Illinois years and, and what happened next. I grew up in a little town called Watsika, Illinois, on a farm in uh, eastern Illinois, about 90 miles south of Chicago. It was a very rural area, but not too far from the big cities. You know, a combination grain and livestock farm like most farms back in those days. And my dad never got to be a very large farmer. I think he never farmed over 700 acres, but he, he worked to build up several farms during his, his lifetime. And I did a lot of work on the farm, you know, a lot of field work, taking care of livestock, that kind of thing. I'm mechanically inclined, so I was always the kid who was trying to build their own go-kart or modify his farm machinery and things like that. I took vocational ag in high school, because at that time, like most boys that grew up on a farm, I thought I'd be a farmer didn't understand what it took to get into it at that point in time. It was actually my vocational agriculture teacher that suggested I ought to look into engineering, which I really didn't know anything about at that time. When I was a senior in high school, the high school, which is about 500 students, they had a field trip to the University of Illinois to something called Engineering Open House, and I was just fascinated with uh, the things that I saw there walking through the different engineering departments. So. I enrolled in engineering the fall after I graduated from high school and never looked back. Once I got into it, I, even though engineering is a tough curriculum, I realized that I loved that kind of stuff. You know, that's what I went into uh, when I got out of college. I got my BS in 1970, and I stayed around another year to get a Master of Science in Agricultural Engineering. And initially, you were thinking you might have gone to work for one of the majors? Yeah, at that time, I was targeting a job with either Caterpillar or John Deere. I'd actually had summer jobs. I had one summer job in 1969 at the International Harvester Farm Equipment Engineering Center in the Chicago area. 
didn't like the big city coming from a rural area. And the next summer I, I managed, actually I should say, I didn't get it. My advisor <laughs> with connections and in industry got it for me. I had a job in the engineering department of the uh, John Deere Harvester Works the next summer. But the year that I graduated was a recession year in the off-road machinery market. So didn't uh, get job offers from either one of those. And I ended up working for Division of Sunstrand Corporation in Rockford, Illinois. They're primarily aerospace, but I worked in a small hydraulics division. It was trying to develop some uh, new high-pressure hydraulics, got uh, merged into the uh, hydro transmission plant here in Ames, which is now called Danfoss. It went through two or three name changes while I was there, and it's had a, had a couple since then, but they still do the same thing they did many years ago. I saw your Sunstrand Aviation ID in, in Washington, D.C. this summer, the oh. Precision Ag. <laughs> the, they had a great display on, on your yeah, company and yeah. you personally. That was my first day at work, believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> so that job had brought you to Ames. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I only worked in Rockford, Illinois for less than a year, and then I was transferred out here. And if I had uh, remained in Rockford, I was to the point of thinking about, well... Could I go interview with somebody like Caterpillar, which was the, the company that had engineering operations closest to where I grew up. But then I think it was only probably nine or 10 months after I started there, we were told that we could transfer out here. And I thought, well, I don't know much about Iowa, <laughs> but it sounds interesting because I knew that their products went into all kinds of off-road equipment, farm and construction equipment. So tell us what was happening leading up to 1986 when you started playing around in the basement. Well, you, um, you know, where I ended up today basically is a product of the terrible recession that happened in the 1980s, the farm crisis of the 80s. And although there wasn't a name, there were crises. And in the automotive industry, it was the first time the U.S. government bailed out Chrysler Corporation. And it was a real crisis, even probably worse for some of the construction equipment companies in, in the 1980s. So the first 10 years that I worked for the Sunstrand Corporation was a lot of fun. The division I was in was doing new things, expanding, um, got to develop a lot of new products. And once 1981 hit and the big slide started, because I recall, I think in egg, sales of their products went down like five or six years in a row because their customers' products were continuing, the sales were continuing to go down year after year. Can't blame them because they had to do the things to keep their doors open, but there was just not as much uh, emphasis on new product development and got to the point that I always like to develop new products. You know, I wasn't really happy with my job, so over, I had a young family then, so I couldn't really just up and decide, well, I'm going to do something completely different. You know, the machinery manufacturers, they weren't hiring anybody. They were getting rid of, of lots of people, so. I just kept thinking about, could I start a company to create a product to start my own company? And over a period of years, I you know, brainstormed a lot of ideas. And finally, by mid to late 1985, I got uh, motivated enough to say, you know, I think a combine yield monitor would be something that would be useful to farmers. Of course, my dad was still farming then. So I asked him if I tried to develop one, would he field test one for me? And of course, he said yes. And so... I started working on one and had a, a crude prototype in the field in the fall of 1986 on his combine. 
and then kept refining it over, over several years. And it was a tough thing to develop something that, that worked accurately enough to be a sellable product. How did you recognize that opportunity to really bring about this kind of sweeping change in the industry? What was it that was the genesis of that idea? Well, looking back, you have to keep in mind that I had no idea what precision farming, as we call it today, would become. I decided to focus on the yield monitor because yield is the farmer's paycheck. It's the number one thing he's interested in. And I just thought, well, if a product can be developed that works accurate enough, why wouldn't a lot of farmers buy that to be able to get a better read on their yields, easier check hybrids, know what's coming off different fields and that kind of thing. I had the vision to make yield maps, but when I started developing the yield monitor, I did not even know that the GPS system existed. That really wasn't out there in the, in the general public yet. I'd anticipated making maps with dead reckoning, compasses, uh, that kind of a thing. But of course, GPS came along and a couple of years after I started the business, it was starting to become usable. And that's kind of what's the GPS technology, the ability to know exactly where you're at. And the advancement of electronics technology and so on has really allowed precision farming to become this huge, uh, broad ranging type of products and in industry that it is today. We have a whole generation of people who, both farmers, dealers, mm -hmm. and manufacturers, who may not even remember what it was like harvesting prior to the yield monitor. Can you kind of answer that question for those who've never done it any other way? Well, back before yield monitors, some farmers might, I mean, they would have an idea of their yield by how full their bins got and what they took into town if the elevator, if they weren't able to hold it and so on. So at best, farmers knew Unless they were running, some would run small strip trials, you know, using a, a way wagon from their seed dealer, that kind of thing. I'm not sure how far back that goes. I'm sure but well before I was uh, trying to develop the yield monitor. But one thing that I do recall very vividly is I don't think anybody really realized the yield variations that you found going across a field. The yield monitor certainly was a big revelation to farmers that it would show them yield differences across their field that were not easily visible. Obviously, 200 bushel per acre corn versus the wet spot where you're getting nothing, you can see that, but uh, it was not at all uncommon for most farmers to see, even in a good year, up to two to one yield variation across their field. So they were surprised by the highs, surprised by the lows. That's where I think over the years, farmers have tried to understand, well, why is this so high? Why is this so low? And, you know, and, and have tried to address reasons for that. I know I've heard stories that, you know, improving the uh, drainage, the tiling on farms, that yield monitors uh, cost a lot of that to happen. Farmer could show his yield map to his landlord. And, and back in those days, I'm sure the sharecropping was much more common today. It's almost all uh, cash rent today, but show the landlord what profit they're losing through yield because of poor drainage, that kind of thing. And a lot of other things, uh, weed pressure. I know a local farmer who was one of the first ones that he bought one of the first 10 monitors I sold in 1992. He actually figured out that he had one field that he was having poor sorbine yields and spots, and he eventually figured out uh, 
that he had soybean uh, cyst nematode was moving into his soil. And he, he wouldn't have known that otherwise if he was just looking at the averages of the field. In another instance, he grows a lot of uh, seed corn. He found out that drift from, from fungicide that he was spraying on seed corn was improving his bean yields in certain areas. You know, otherwise he wouldn't have known that because it was only on edges of fields and, and that kind of thing. And then the direction that the wind was blowing that particular day. Was it about six years that you were testing this on your, your father's farm? Right. Yeah, I had a couple of other field testers. One, one of his neighbors that had a, a newer model combine than my dad had. And, and then the very last year, uh, I expanded to another, another farmer here in, in Iowa. But I really only had three field testers before I put the product into, into production. You had young children then. When I started the company, one would have been just a teenager, 13, and the other was two years younger. Okay. Yeah, so 11 and 13 they would have been. And coming out of the, the 80s, which was in very near memory yeah. at that time, tell us about the decision to go out and hang your own shingle out there and go <laughs> after it. Well, that was a big step because didn't know if you are going to be successful. I'd never had the misfortune of being uh, laid off like many people that I knew in, in, those, uh, in those recession years because uh, those layoffs continued almost all the way through the 1980s. A lot of companies that were in the off-road machinery business. So I had a secure job making a, you know, a good salary and benefits and all that. And it was, it was like stepping off a, a cliff. What did your dad say? when you told them what you had in mind? Well, as I was developing it, because it took so many years to get it perfected, he said things like, oh, you just gotta go sell this to John Deere or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't wanna do that, yeah. <laughs> I stuck to it. He was neither encouraging nor discouraging. You know, my dad was a good farmer that always tried to do a good job, but he was not the early adopter type. He was a late adopter type of a person. You know, once I had the product, uh, I mean, he used it the rest of his career. He liked to see the maps and the yield on the go, but he never had any interest in really doing much about it. It's just like, uh, well, there it is. <laughs> he felt he was doing everything he could to try to be a good farmer otherwise, and, and, and he was the old traditional way, so to speak. There's probably some advantage to having your first uh, farm user a late adopter. You had to convince him, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It was pretty scary, and my wife, she didn't say no, but she kind of wondered, <laughs> is this guy crazy or what? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I was just so obsessed with, you know, I think I really can do this, that, that I, I took the big step. And it was, man, it was, it was tough that first year. You know, I was the typical startup where I thought I could sell 30 to 40 of these units the first year, and I sold 10. And at least half of them were with people that I knew before, mm -hmm. <laughs> personal connections type of a thing. So, Is there some gut check that first winter? Yeah, yeah. I certainly uh, learned some good business lessons that, uh, you know, things like you got you to gotta keep your cash flow going because that's the lifeblood of a business, that kind of a thing. And, you know, different than startups today because there's a whole bunch of them over here in the Iowa State research park that go out and, and get uh, uh, venture capital 
course, in this part of the country, venture capital was an unknown thing, but I wouldn't have gone after that anyhow because I wanted to be in control of the companies. It was obviously very important to control my expenses in the, in the very beginning. In fact, the first six months of the company, I didn't have any employees. I worked out of my house, and when I, that was the first fall season because I started the company in June of 92. And then going into the mid to late winter, I realized, well, I got I to gotta get some employees. So I rented a, a small office and garage space. And all my employees at that point in time were part-time university students. They could get come to work, you know, 15 to 20, 30 hours a week, maybe if they were in a slow time of their schooling. It was more than a year before I hired the first full-time employee who, by the way, is, is still with me. He was, he was hired uh, to be a technician, basically, to help me put product together. He wanted to get an engineering degree, electrical engineering degree at Iowa State. He'd been working at Rockwell Collins over in the, uh, uh, over in the Iowa City area. He'd actually been building military GPS receivers, even though that, that background really didn't help me for, we weren't into GPS yet. Uh, and of course, we don't design them, we, we buy them and resell them. But uh, yeah, he eventually got his engineering degree working part-time and he's an electrical engineer here. So yeah, he's been here for coming up on, I guess so that was 25th anniversary and very shortly here. Actually talked him into coming in and working the Labor Day weekend because I needed help so badly. <laughs> and he did. That first yield monitor 92, was that about a $2,000 investment? Uh, I think that was about $2,200. It, it didn't have the moisture sensor. That didn't come till the second year. You know, and looking back, and that's one of the kind of things we pointed out in this little skit we, we did last year, when I'd go to farm shows, and, and it was me only doing that the first, I don't know, two or three years of the company, probably participated into years four and five, even after I had a one person to, to help me out on that. You know, uh, uh, farmers were used to buying, you know, pretty low cost pieces of electronics, like a thing that would count your acres for $295, that kind of thing. And when you tell them that uh, this yield monitor, well, the second year out, I think it increased in retail list price to like $2,750 or $2,750. They went, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I never spent anything for an add-on piece of electronic equipment, that kind of money before. Mm-hmm. And these days you got, you know, farmers equipping their their planters with all this fancy stuff we've got now. Sometimes they're spending $60,000 or more to retrofit a machine. So back when you were getting going, you sold 10 that first full season. Mm-hmm. So we're talking less than $30,000 in revenue from that product the first year. Yeah, I, well, yeah, yeah, less yeah. than thirty thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah. Was there other products or parts? So that was no, the, that was the, it. Period. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Obviously, I didn't make money that that yeah. year, but but well, that first six months it was just me. So mm-hmm. I, my expenses were pretty low. My mm-hmm. overhead was really yeah. low. <laughs> yeah. How did you go to market in those early years? How did you get the product out there? Well. Um, that's something I had to learn a lot about. I didn't know much of anything about sales and marketing, and it reminds me of uh, a manager that I'd worked for off and on, because in larger companies you tend to move around, you know, working for different peoples over the years. But once he knew I was leaving and I hadn't told anyone there what I was doing, I remember him making the comment about, 
well, you don't know anything about sales and marketing. <laughs> or he was telling me I didn't know anything about sales and marketing. And I kind of blew it off. <laughs> Typical engineer, what's, what's involved in that? <laughs> Uh, but certainly, uh, uh, yeah, I had a lot to learn there. And uh, it, I made all the sales directly that first year. You know, when I started the company, I don't, you know, when I introduced the product, I only had it for John Deere combines because that's what my dad had. It's what these other two guys had that I'd use for testers. They had the newer model combines. So I went around and talked to all the Deere dealers uh, with, in about 80 miles of, of Ames and you know took a, a monitor to show them some pictures of the flow sensor installation that kind of thing uh, so I was trying to do it myself but I knew that I couldn't I couldn't sell direct long term I had to have a dealer network and I really I really didn't know how to do that until first farm show I went to was actually over in Peoria Illinois in 1992 the year that I started so it was just after harvest season and people started stopping by when they saw something new they'd never heard of and turns out they were independent manufacturers representatives which i didn't even know those kind of people existed at that point in time and so i started hooking up with some of those those folks which were good for me in the beginning um, they had the connections to the implement dealers which the implement dealers were the the dealers that uh, sold most of my product in the first few years because the OEMs were not yet in the business with their own yield monitors. They, that's the show that you had the 13-inch color TV hooked up yet? I, I saw uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, we even at our 25th celebration last year, we even, uh, I found that TV and I found the tape that sort of sort of played. It was a little, <laughs> little messed up, but it played enough you could see what was on. There was actually some video of uh, one of the first guys uh, close to here that bought a yield monitor and I'd taken, I had done this just with a regular video camera in his combine, taking some video of the, the yield going up and down. And we did a little skit at the uh, 25th anniversary. Mm -hmm. I and and the uh, uh, internal sales guy that's been with me over 20 years now. Mm -hmm. I played the farmer and he played the, the salesman. <laughs> you played Al Myers? <laughs> <laughs> So when you, it would, it would be fair to say that you're the largest independent. I would say we're, we're the largest privately owned supplier. I think we've officially defined independent as not being captive to an, to an agricultural OEM. So there are three that are larger than us. None of them are privately owned, but uh, they're not captive to an OEM. I'm talking about like Tremble or Raven or Topcon mm -hmm. in, in particular would be the three notable ones. Mm -hmm. And your, your business today, what, what's the percentage of aftermarket versus OEM? Uh, for a long time, we've uh, maintained about 75% aftermarket and about 25% OEM. Okay. And the bulk of our OEM is uh, yield monitors to, you know, the uh, American Big Three uh, combine manufacturers. But we do supply uh, some application controls uh, to New Leader on their spinner beds to some of the smaller sprayer manufacturers and other fertilizer applicator manufacturers, that kind of a thing. We'll get back to the story of Al Myers and Ag Leader in a moment, but first a word about Osmondson Manufacturing, which continues to support us in these chronicles of family-run equipment manufacturers. Also an Iowa success story, 
Osmundson has a storied family history of its own, dating all the way back to 1903. Visit them at www.osmundson.com. And now back to more with Al, an ag leader, who we're proud to say has sponsored each of the last National No-Tillage Conference to support growers' knowledge. Part two of this podcast covers the first big OEM order, some facts and figures about the business and its approach to R&D, his proudest and most disappointing moments, and also a look into what the next succession plan looks like for Agri. What was that, uh, the landing of the first OEM business? What was that like going up there, meeting with them, and getting that part off the ground? That was Case Corporation. And yeah, I can tell you some, some interesting things there. And, and uh, actually, more than just being invited to go to some big company and make a pitch, you know, there was one older fella that worked there. He's, I think he retired like 15 years ago. He had actually come originally from their Memphis plant where they made cotton pickers years ago when he was at the combine plant when it was still in, in East Moline. And he approached me and, and came to visit and, and that kind of thing. And they were the first OEM to really make a major push into precision farming. They were the first to offer a factory installed yield monitor, Case Corporation was. But yeah, he, he came to approach me. There was probably some other people with him, but uh, we probably had something written down, but I don't really remember that. And he approached me in late 1994, and I and some of my people worked really hard to do the customizing for them in 1995. I think they put about 60 systems out in the field. Pretty good size test program. But the interesting thing was uh, after we were in production, he told me that the year I started the company, there were, I, I already had a competitor for a yield monitor. That was Dawn Equipment Company, who now makes planter products, uh, introduced a yield monitor. It was, I could tell it was not nearly as developed and sophisticated. It appeared to be a, you know, a fairly uh, quickly developed thing. After the fall 92 harvest, they only had one year in the field with it. They sold it to Microtrack. And that was a concern to me because Microtrack was an existing company. It had been in business for a long time, so that, that concerned me. But over several years, it became obvious that the Egg Leader system worked better because I had spent a lot of time developing and making it work well. And the guy from Case said, he said something like, well, we had a meeting with some of our dealers, and we told them that we were going to we're going to make a deal with them and install their yield monitors. And the dealer said, no, you should use the one that works. <laughs> the egg leader <laughs> one. Dealers that were already selling them. <laughs> and uh, he came and saw me and, well, the rest is history. And that was, uh, yeah, that was, that was a big shot in the arm for, for egg leader, you know. I think the year after they had a full year of production, I think sales to them might have been like 40% of my sales. But over the years, our, our aftermarket grew more than the OEM did. So that, that big OE contract really happened pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, they would have come to me, let's see, after the third harvest season, they, yeah, they approached me. And we made a deal to work together very quickly and then basically spent uh, spring and summer, late winter, spring and summer of early fall of 1995 getting it ready for production. and. And they went into production in March of 1996. 
So the dealers told him about it to contact you. He came and knocked on your door. Had you expected to get into the OE business at that time? Uh, I had thought we might, but I wasn't expecting it that early, to be honest with you. They were very aggressive at that point in time. They, you know, they established this AFS division, which they still use that trademark, but when they call it a merger with New Holland, but basically New Holland bought the case company and you know, then that, that group got over a few years, got disbanded basically. And today, how many employees? And today, worldwide, we are about uh, 285 or maybe 90 now. We've been hiring a few people. We've been bigger back in the good days, uh, you know, 2008 through 2013. We probably had close to 100 more uh, uh, total, total employees, but uh, the ag recession has pulled us back a little. Uh, we do have three foreign offices. We have one in the Netherlands that serves Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Most of the business is in Europe, of course. We have an Australian office that handles uh, Australia and, and other areas in the Pacific, uh, but that's mostly Australia again. We have an office in Brazil that serves South America. And you've done a number of expansions right here in, in Ames. Right, yeah. What, what's your square footage that you're up to now? Uh, this building, I think, is about 150,000. This is where our, all our offices in manufacturing. We have our dealer training building just west of here, which I think that's about 25,000 square feet. Uh, we call it the Ag Leader Academy. And we have a distribution center that's uh, a little east of here where we ship all our finished product. We've got a big storeroom to keep machinery in when we're not uh, using it in the field. I think that's, that's about 63,000 square feet. We do own one wholly owned subsidiary and that is uh, Soilmax, the tile plow company. I purchased that company in addition to the assets of a company called Gradient, which was a sister company that pretty much pioneered GPS control of tile plows. They maybe weren't the first, but they were first to make something that was easily usable by a farmer. Uh, we didn't need the whole company. There wasn't much to it other than the technology, uh, but we integrated that product into, into our own product line, put it in our displays. When you started out in, in 1992, what was your dream of what this company would be one day? What could you have guessed 2018 might have looked like when you were first starting it? <laughs> I would say, honestly, that in 1992, I couldn't envision where we are today. I mean, quite frankly, in the beginning, I didn't have this really long-term vision. I had this desire to say, I want to stay in business. I want to I get the company to the point that it can sustain itself. But I certainly did not recognize uh, how broad, how big uh, precision farming was going to be. Or some of the you know technological advancements as we look back now we shouldn't say well why are we surprised but if you think about what things like the the iPhones the the Android phones and iPads and so on have done in the last five or so years to all our lives it's just you know if you go back 20 years before that could we any of us imagine that no <laughs> i don't think so had you got things working at your dad's farm, let's say three years earlier, and had put out then, would we have seen any different result? Probably not, although I do feel that I was just plain, you might say, dumb lucky to have 
the right technology at the right time. Although if I go back to my earlier comment about GPS has been such a wonderful thing for, for giving you accurate position location, the yield mapping part of it would have been quite a struggle and probably would have really slowed down the adoption rate until the GPS came along and, and really made that practical. It's interesting, some of these interviews, some of them said if we'd come out with it three years early, we probably would have run out of money, and others said if we came out three years later, yeah. it would have been too competitive. And <laughs> it's just interesting dynamic. Yeah. Well, I think the first precision ag company, uh, what I'd call truly precision ag, was uh, Soil Tech. I think I can remember reading about that in farm industry news, but uh, they ended up getting bought out by uh, Ag Chem, so I think... They were real early in trying to do something site-specific, and I think it was so difficult to do. I think they tried beacon uh, locating technology and maybe dead reckoning that I think that really, really slowed their adoption and probably was one of the big reasons that they were sold out to Ag Chem. Yeah, because you can be too late or too early in the market. I was looking at your timeline here of, of all these innovations, and you had some years where it must have just been crazy around here coming out. I'm looking at 2009, 2012, this appetite to innovate and keep pushing. Tell us where that came from. Well, I was the type of person that always wanted to do something new when I was an engineer. You know, there were, there were engineers that were happy to, let's say, be support engineers on the product that the company had been making for 10, 15, 20 years, and they were happy in, in, that, in that type of a job. But I was always the kind of engineer that wanted to get my hands on something and do something new. Maybe it wasn't totally new to the world, but it was, it was going to be new to that company and better than, than what existed before and, and that kind of a thing. So personally, I always had that appetite for, you know, wanting to create something new. And I've grown you know, basically that philosophy has gradually been um, instilled in the people that, you know, that have come on board, you know, because you might say in the beginning, I kind of set the culture of the company and then these, these young people that come in and, and um, you know, some of them don't stay forever. Some of them do want the more mundane job, but, but the good people that have stayed with me for a long time, they like doing the same kind of thing. It's now endemic to the culture. Right. When you, when you look at this list, what are the innovations that you're most proud of, most excited about when you look back on it? Well, I would say I call 2004 the beginning of the modern era of Ag Leader, and that was the year that we introduced our Insight display and started transitioning our products over to the CANBUS type of architecture that all the farm machinery was, was moving to that at that point in time. That's an electrical architecture. That's not ISOBUS. That started coming on a little bit later. But, um, you know, we were able to introduce the first reliable, easy-to-use, large-color touchscreen display in the ag industry. It wasn't the first color display. I can't remember if there were touchscreens or not, but certainly it was it was a step ahead, and we were able to move to uh, that new type of technology more successfully than some of the big companies that were just moving into it. I remember a guy that worked here in our tech support department, and he left 
to go to work for one of the large uh, machinery manufacturers, and I heard secondhand that you know when we introduced our Insight display in the CAN bus systems that he told some of our people here, boy, you guys don't know what kind of headaches you were you're in for, and we didn't have those. We were successful, and so to me that was that was really the beginning of Ag Leader expanding its the ability to, with a CAN bus type system. You don't have to hook everything up to the display. That really gave us the platform for expanding into all these different functions that, that we do because prior to the Insight display, we of course did grain yield monitoring, we had done cotton yield monitoring, and we did some, we did some planter control through the Rawson hydraulic drive and some spreader control through the, uh, the version of that that Rawson sold to, to New Leader, and that's really all we could do. But the Insight and the CAN bus architecture really uh, opened up the future for us. What would be some of the, the bigger disappointments that you had to endure over time? Certainly we've had some, some products that haven't become what we expected them to be. The cotton yield monitor, we haven't made that for a number of years. We did get into that because we actually worked with Case Corporation on that. It was their sensor technology, but it was disappointing we didn't realize going into it because we hadn't done our research that it was such a small industry, sales of cotton pickers versus combines. I'd say a second disappointment was our Aptrex crop sensor. I think it's good technology and we still have that. It was maybe a bit ahead of our time. It's possible that we didn't really understand how to market it and maybe still don't understand today. Those are two that, that come to mind where I can look back and say, yeah, those those products uh, did did really disappoint us. We expected a lot more from them. If you had followed that, that dream when you first got out of college work, working for the majors and had been in that role and survived mm -hmm. the layoffs that they had in the 80s, we probably wouldn't be here. Oh, I'm today, sure we wouldn't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I've thought about the fact that, well, what if I had gone and gotten a job and in Illinois uh, before I got transferred out here. I probably would have had a lot closer relationship to the, to the family farm. And uh, I, I'm sure I would have, you know, uh, worked a full career in industry, but uh, probably would have retired five or 10 years before now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Might have gone back and hobby farm to the family farm. We, you know, my family still does own the the five farms that my dad accumulated in his lifetime and they're rented out to a, to a tenant now. So. Hope you're enjoying the interview so far. Here's a quick word about another project from our editors here at Lesser Media that you want to make sure you're subscribed to. I'm Jack Semlick of Precision Farming Dealer Magazine. If you want to be more successful in precision ag sales, service, and support, join us for the annual Precision Farming Dealer Summit co-located with the National No-Tillage Conference. Check out more information at PrecisionSummit.com. And now, back to Mike and his How We Did It conversation with Al Myers, the founder and CEO of Ag Leader. When you hear the term precision ag today, uh, precision farming, how, how do you define what that term means? Well, that's a good question. Let me think a minute. You know, I think it's Certainly, to a large degree, it has the component of spatial location to it. In other words, knowing where different yields, uh, whatever, 
populations, uh, fertilizer rates are exist in the field, and then um, using that data, soil test data, for example, using that data to do something on a on a spatial basis. In fact, in the beginning of what is widely called precision farming today, site-specific farming was a, was a widely used term, and and that's a lot of what is called precision farming today. There's the purely operational aspects such as the the auto steering, you know. You're not collecting agronomic data there, but you're making the machine more efficient and reducing operator fatigue and and that kind of a thing. What do you think the next three to five years we could see in this industry? Well, certainly we're going to see a continuation of, I think, making the the things you can do on a site-specific basis smaller. For example, there's companies, not, not us yet, that have nozzle-by-nozzle nozzle control for your sprayers versus section control, uh, that kind of thing. So I think, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight, but gradually you're going to see that pieces of data that we can collect in the field are going to become smaller. The ability to, to record them on a, on a smaller scale in other words, a smaller um, spatial area, and then to do something with them more precisely. We already have row by row, row shutoff, population control on planters, that kind of thing. But we'll see that happening on other machines. And I'm sure we're going to see, we all know that self-driving cars is in the news all the time. We're, we're going to see some, start to see some self-driving farm machinery in the next few years. What will those changes require of you or the opportunity for your company to participate in that? Well, it requires continued heavy investment on research and development. And since we're a privately owned company that's self-funded, that can make it difficult, it is making it difficult to compete with some of the big companies that have uh, jumped into the game like Monsanto and um, Climate Corporation, for example. That's not machinery, but it's certainly uh, the data end of the type of things we do. Or some of the startups that are you know, getting a lot of money. They don't have a business yet, but they're getting uh, a lot of money uh, pumped into them from venture capitalists. So our challenge is to not only keep our existing product lines going viable, uh, by introducing uh, enhancements, but to put the R&D effort into the new, the new products to uh, try to stay um, ahead of the game as much as we can. How can you characterize what sort of emphasis or investment R&D gets at this company? Well, the simple way to put it is, well, we put every penny we can into it, <laughs> mm. <laughs> literally. <laughs> That's what uh, guides how many people we've got hired in the engineering department and product management. Uh, uh, obviously, it's a limitation across the whole company, but certainly at this point in time, we're putting, uh, you know, our priorities on uh, ability, you know, money to uh, hire new people in the uh, in the development area. I can't tell you off the top of my head what the percent of our, you might say, our gross income is, but certainly our engineering department is a, our largest one in terms of uh, expenses for people. Our sales department spends a lot of money, but... It's not so much on people, it's a marketing, <laughs> sales and marketing department. <laughs> you strike me as operating differently than, than many, cut from a different cloth. Mm -hmm. When it comes to R&D and product design and that, that appetite, what was it that you observed from earlier in your career or said, I'm, I'm going to do it differently when, it's, when I run the show? 
I could go a couple different ways with that. You know, from a management standpoint, I'm very participative. And you see managers that are very participative in large companies, and you see some that aren't, that are dictatorial. Uh, so I like to be participative in, in management. Even back in the days when everybody looked to me to make the final decision, I always ask opinion of, of all my people that, that might have good input on it. I would say one thing that was valuable in my prior experience, one thing I am very proud of is that we have a very capable engineering department. And we can engineer and produce products that have what I call OEM or better quality. And a lot of small companies can't do that. A lot of people start up a company with an innovative idea. They really can't, you know, design and develop and manufacture the, you might say, the standard of the, what I call an, a product that an OEM would be proud to, uh, to put into their product line type of a thing and the quality that, that we provide. And I, I attribute that to a large degree to the background that I had for over 20 years working for a company, their whole business was supplying products to OEMs, egg and primarily egg and construction machinery manufacturers. And I had worked with, uh, with a number of, of those companies on various projects over the years. And I knew how OEMs worked. I knew what they expected of their suppliers, uh, the reliability, the quality of design, and, and that kind of thing. And I believe that was an advantage for me in starting up this company in that, uh, you know, it took a while to build the capable engineering department that I had. I mean, I knew the mechanical engineering end of things, but uh, and I did my own electronics and programming in the beginning, but I really had to bring in people that had strong expertise in that. And that is, that is certainly one thing from my background, I believe allowed me to recognize how to build an organization that could do that. And, and where we supply to OEMs today, we're a very high quality supplier to them, where we get excellent marks on our delivery performance and our quality performance. Your dealers today, how, how many dealers you have? We have several hundred, I, I, let me say a few hundred dealers. I know in the last couple of years, we've really been focusing on building the quality of our dealer network. We have a few hundred good dealers in, in North America where most of our business is today. That I think at one point we were probably pushing close to a thousand dealers on our whole dealer list, but we've cut out the majority of those because um, they were doing very little for us and they were spending any time with us. So we've had a big push in uh, recent years to really work with our dealers and, and do things to actually help them train them to be better dealers. That's the investment you put in with the training facility here. Not only that, we run a thing called peer groups where we, uh, uh, two or three times a year, we bring them into a central location and that's been a really, a really awesome thing. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's bad about that is we're making them better dealers and because most, many of them sell competitive products to ours as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. And do you still have that, the Delta program going? Yes, we have Blue Delta dealers, yes. Blue Delta dealers, the thing that's different, there are some requirements that they have to meet in terms of uh, having certain amounts of training, doing a certain amount of promotion, So, and they get a little extra discount for being a, a Blue Delta dealer. Maybe it's not so much discount as it is they get some more assistance from us or more 
marketing assistants, that kind of a thing. You might say it's our better, our elite dealers. If somebody's out there looking for an egg leader dealer in their area, they're going to look a little better to somebody that doesn't happen to know them, mm-hmm. you know, that they are one of our top dealers. Yeah. No, the, the investment that you make, you just mentioned the resources, the peer group, mm-hmm. the training center. I know that you support a lot of educational mm-hmm. events, also what you're doing here at Iowa State. Tell us about why you've chosen to, to take that, that route, invest in knowledge. Well, it's to our benefit to do anything that we can within reason to you know, help growers, help young people that are going into something related to precision farming, to help them understand what it is, what they need to do, what they need to learn to, to be able to participate in it. And that kind of reminds me of when I started the company and started selling the Yield Monitor 2000, which was a device that could keep track of your whole harvest by field, name, and by what we called loads, which could be subsets of fields. And that just blew farmers' minds because they had never had anything that could do more than keep two counters that you could reset and then the data was gone. You know, that was a real struggle in the beginning, and that's one of the reasons that we developed a very strong technical support department was, I mean, there were a few techie farmers, but that's maybe that's 5% or less of the the farmers that'll figure out anything uh, if you give it to them. Um, But, uh, you know, it it was a struggle to to get farmers trained of, well, this is how you calibrate it, this is how you use it, this is how you get your data off of it. and that kind of a thing because they just never been exposed to anything that kept all this data before, recorded it and and kept it. And uh, this will sound crazy today, but I can remember, well, in the very beginning, I was, I and this one technician I hired that is now an electrical engineer, pretty much did all the technical support. Maybe there was a student or two that participated, but I can remember talking to a few farmers and they'd have to go to the house to call call us. I said, and at that time I had a bag phone, if you can remember what a Motorola bag phone looks like (laughs) when I was away on to go to to shows and I'd say to a farmer, well, it sure be nice if you had a a phone in your combine, you can call me right with the display and he'd laugh at me like, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And now who, who has phones in their shirt pocket today? every farmer and everybody else. And the other thing we've seen happen is, uh, of course, in the beginning, practically none of the farmers uh, that were buying yield monitors had ever touched a computer. It was only the really techie ones that, you know, found it interesting and, you know, had gone out in the 80s and got a computer and learned how to use it and so on. And, you know, we're at least, we're probably what, more than a generation away from, uh, you know, with the younger people coming in that grew up with technology. And that certainly helped a lot in terms of uh, young people that grew up with technology, they pick it up much easier than, than the people that didn't. Question that I think would be interesting to ask you about the different climate today than 92. Think about if you'd slipped into a Rip Van Winkle type sleep in 1992 <laughs> and woke up today and we've got you know, different regulations, different people, you know, had grown up with different experiences, different competition, the whole patent and legal litigation process. What would be different about trying to do what you did in today's environment? Um, It would be much harder today. 
it would be, I think, just about impossible to do what I did back then today using the very limited resources that I had because I had nothing other than what little bit of money that I could spare from, you know, my full, full-time job, you know. I had, a, I had a mortgage on my house and two kids that were growing up and, and that kind of a thing. The technology barrier is much higher today than, than it was back then. Back then, I could teach myself to, to do the, some of the things that, that I wasn't trained in, you know. Um, go to Radio Shack and get some parts and build your first prototype, that kind of a thing. Technology's more sophisticated. Uh, the barrier to entries are a lot higher because the technology is, is advanced so much. And there are so many, I mean, there are so many companies uh, pursuing precision ag or things related to that today that if you're gonna make it, you better have literally the, the best mousetrap anybody ever had or will have invented or, or, or a big bucket of money to, to keep you going until you can get a business going. What, um Question about what's really unique about the way that that you operate the company. What would be those those points of execution that r really you define differently? Well, um, certainly in the beginning, I basically pretty much controlled everything because I was in the very beginning. I couldn't afford to hire a lot of you know experienced help, so I was hiring people that were coming off the street or straight out of college, a lot of young people then. So I basically had to, you might say, have my fingers on everything going on in the company from not just uh, design, but sales, um, you know, the, the independent manufacturers reps all reported to, directly to me for, for quite a few years before I got sales management, uh, but production and everything. But, you know, as I was able to grow and bring in people that had some of these skills in these different areas, I, I would say um, one thing that, that I've done is rather than tell them how to do it, let them show me how it should be done type of a thing. Uh, because there's a lot of areas of running a business where I certainly wasn't an expert. Sales, marketing, manufacturing, um, those kind of things. Obviously, accounting, you know, I. I ran the company for five or six years with no accounting system, just keeping track of things in spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. And at the end, you know, after every, at the end of every year, spending a ton of time going through these things and cross-checking and then handing it to an accountant to do my taxes type of a thing. So I think the company couldn't have grown if I hadn't uh, recognized that I needed to bring in people with these different skills and then let them show me how the company sh should uh, should operate, and some of those people have just done some wonderful things for us. Like our our uh, my director of manufacturing, uh, he actually was a lean manufacturing consultant for us. You know, if you go way back to when I originally set up our production, it's line up some tables and tell people how to how to put this thing together, and and uh, you know, not terribly efficient. And, uh, you know, when he came in as a lean manufacturing consultant, he just really opened uh, my eyes and a lot of other people's eyes of, well, this is how you do this stuff efficiently. And, uh, and we had the opportunity to hire him. And it was one of the best hires I've, I've ever mm -hmm. made. Just one example. Right. There's many others. That realization that you needed to 
bring people in and have them show you? Was that something that you arrived at after some time here or, or did kind of come in with that mindset? I'd say it developed over time where I, uh, you know, because my history before starting the company was a development engineer type of mentality. You know, I had been, I guess there was one thing that was an advantage to me. I had been involved uh, in, you know, I, I worked in a manufacturing, in the office of a manufacturing plant, so I, I had some exposure to it, but, um, you know, I really didn't know how to set up manufacturing operations. So I guess you would say over time I realized, oh, I can't do this. I need somebody, somebody who's an expert in it. I, I didn't come in knowing I needed all these other people's skills. I, I gradually learned it over time as the company grew. When you start to think about the future for, for Ag Leader, mm -hmm. and, and it seems the desire to remain privately held and very independent is still there, right? Mm -hmm. so yes. What's ahead for the, the next generation of Ag Leader? Well, I've been building a very strong management staff here and they all desire to be independent. I mean, we've all seen what's happened to some of these companies that have been, you know, absorbed into into larger companies where the the owner the owner sells out and goes off and does whatever he wants to with his money, but he's no longer in, involved and so on. And I I have two sons. One runs his own business uh, that's not egg related, and Mike, uh, the younger one, is manager of our uh, display programming area actually, and he'll be the one that uh, ends up in control of the company after I'm gone. But I have very strong staff of people, and uh, that uh, and we've started to integrate him into. Uh, what we call our, our business leaders group, where most of my staff that reports directly to me and him uh, get together twice a month and basically discuss the, the high-level business issues and set the objectives, yearly objectives for the company and so on. So what are the core tenants, principles, non-negotiables that have been pounded into him that he'll carry forth? Well, um, obviously, He's been around the company since <laughs> since he was in high school, at least. Uh, well, even before then, although he wouldn't have had much uh, contact with it then. He's kind of new to being in, you know, in management, so he doesn't, I would say, he does not have an egg background, but my other key staff that, you know, he's learning from them a lot of different things, and, and he, he will have to rely on other people that really know and understand the ag market when he's in, in control of the company. He may have the position of chairman of the board or something like that, and, and he'll, he'll pick who runs the company. But one of our strengths is that we've got so many people that have started here just out of school in most cases that come from a, a farm background and have, you know, we've recognized their abilities and you know promoted them and and that's that gives us real strength in understanding what to do and not do in the in the ag market when you look at the business for the next 10 years and not not just ag leader mm -hmm. business but the industry what concerns you the most hmm. concerns me the most uh the money that it takes to continue to be competitive uh you know the the oems grow larger all the time John Deere in particular, you know, absorbing a lot of companies, that kind of thing. That doesn't mean there's not a place for a company like Ag Leader, but uh, certainly as I talked about earlier, you know, for a privately owned company that has to 
be self-funded. You know, the, the ante to stay competitive in technology goes up all the time. Now, that's where the big companies have an advantage. Their disadvantage is often they're very inefficient in the way they manage things. So we have the advantage of, you know, we're small and lean and can make decisions quickly and, you know. And you don't have to steer, steer a battleship. Exactly, so yeah. We stick to what we know. You might say we stick to the knitting, which is something I read many years ago and in some book about why big businesses get themselves into trouble. We stick to what we know how to do well for the most part, you know, the, the general types of, of technologies. What, what excites you the most about your place in Precision Ag moving ahead? Well, I think we're in a pretty good position, even with the difficulty of, you know, financing the continued development. We're, I think we're in a good position to, to continue to remain a strong player in the industry. We have some, some very good technology. One of the things we're proudest of is we feel very strongly we have the best uh, high-end displays in the, in the egg market. We get really, really good marks by, from end users that our displays are easier to use than the OEM displays. Our dealers tell us that when we introduce a new product, sometimes there's small glitches, but they for the last several years have tell us, well, we know when you got a new product, it's gonna work. They trust us for that. We've got some strong, strong equity in our product and in our brand and our, you know, our dealer network. Thanks to Al for carving out the time on a day his European team was in the building in Ames. And also to Osmondson Manufacturing for supporting our time, travel, and production for these recordings. Visit them at www.osmondson.com. And a special thanks again to Joe Kinsley at Lesseter Media for his very adept editing skills. Thanks for joining us today. Till next time, I'm Mike Lesseter of Farm Equipment, No-Till Farmer, and Precision Farming Dealer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipment's Entrepreneurs.